JR, like when you when people meet you and they say for uh, and you're like like forest arrows, that's right. Like arrows you shoot in a yep. forest. <laughs> yep, that's it. Welcome back to the Fascinating Podcast. This is episode number 312. I'm J.R. Foresteros. I am Clay Morgan. 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 And uh, friends, you know that uh, sometimes our other co-hosts can't join us. Matt Michelotis is off doing fancy stuff. Kathy Kong will be along for the episode, but her internet crashed just after we finished recording our interview with author Brittany Delacreta, who we are so excited to talk to today. So Kathy will be along for the episode. But Clay, first of all, mm-hmm. I think we might be in trouble. Oh, trouble? Uh, dozens of feral hogs invaded Fort Bend County uh, earlier this week and caused massive amounts of property damage. Fort Bend County is in southeast Texas, not very far from us, as the crow flies, as they say, as the hog runs. What is going on with feral hogs? This is, I am not okay with this being like a theme of our show. Why do we have to keep, are we, well, just, trying, are we just trying to be the tip of the spear here on what society needs to understand? We joined Twitter in mocking the man who suggested that he needed an assault rifle to protect his property from 30 to 50 feral hogs coming onto his property. And we said that's ridiculous and absurd. And yet it seems like this is now exactly what is happening. 30 to 50 or even more feral hogs are uh, just running running rampant through Texas what neighborhoods. What you got to do? So these feral hogs, I guess they're feral, meaning like they didn't originate on some farm. Like they just correct. were out there like, uh, like in the woods yep. and then they just decided to like hit the town and yep. so now we've got all of this visual evidence of them just like cruising down Main Street. Correct. What would you do if you were, um, you know, just just dipping into a store for an ice cream and you stepped out on the sidewalk and uh, you turned and saw a pack of feral hogs ambling towards you? Do they amble? Or do oh, they, they trot. trot? They trot, they trot for sure. They trot according to the videos. Uh, I'd probably Hog try to trot. find a, st- a, f- a store a storefront to, to di- dive into. Like, what if you couldn't? What if you were too far from a door? Do you think? You I'll tell would you what stand? I do. Like, would, would they just kind of like prance? Do, do they come at you? Is it like a? Deer I'll tell you situation? what I do. I'd run perpendicular. Because in the movies, you always run the hogs. If they're if they're coming east west, I'm going north south. But they've got a pretty good like pivot move right they could turn oh sure but i'm just thinking i'm just thinking i get out of their path and let them go the, go about their way well just because they're feral doesn't mean they're aggressive like are they just cruising or are they coming at people uh it seems like they're mostly just cruising and doing a lot of property damage by being feral hogs doesn't seem uh, like they're like coming into town to cause trouble hmm. this isn't west side story feral hog edition i don't know man i I would probably freak out. But it's kind of like zombie rules, right? I mean, you just got to be faster than the other person next to you who's trying to run away. I don't think so. I think one feral hog takes someone down, the rest of them are still coming after you. Oh. That's why I'm saying run perpendicular. Get out of their path. Let them go on their way. This is a good argument for me to live in the city. I'm less likely to have to worry (laughs) about this right in the heart. That's what that's what everyone thinks. First, they come for the (laughs) suburbs, and I did nothing because I was not in a suburb. (laughs) Uh, Well, speaking of uh, a great foot speed, (laughs) wow! Just I, I was wondering how you were going to pivot that, and it was just an all-star pivot. Um, Yeah, we should get to our interview. Uh, Brittany Delacreta is a freelance writer who focuses on the intersection of sports, gender, and culture. And their work has appeared in the New York Times, Sports Illustrated, ESPNW, Vogue, The Washington Post, Teen Vogue, The Ringer, Bleacher Report, The Atlantic, and more. And they live in the Boston area. And so they co-wrote this book, Hail Mary, uh, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. 
with uh, Lindsay Darkangelo. Darkangelo. And good Darkangelo. job on the title. You nailed it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Unlike and, at the end of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, they're also very gracious and delightful. And as you'll hear very soon, share a love of history and finding stories and finding those neat little artifacts that have just kind Play, of been I knew when away. I first when I first reached out to Brittany on Twitter I knew that this was like the show for you if we've ever done a show right history sports everything this is like so much up your alley well you know what it's got me thinking is there any kind of a story like this to be told about hockey hockey yeah <laughs> right right I knew it so um, well, let's hop over to our interview with Brittany. It really is exciting. We're, we're excited for everyone to hear it. So here we go. Hook, hook. Our guest today is Brittany Delacreta. Uh, Brittany, welcome to the Fascinating Podcast. We're so excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. Uh, we always ask our first-time guests, what is something that fascinates you in your life? So this is actually related to my my book that we're probably going to be talking about, but I am fascinated by history um, and specifically about whose history gets told and the lenses that we don't hear. Um, and so that is something that I am always looking for is like gaps in, in the, the mainstream history and the way that we are uh, being given stories and whose narrative we're hearing. Oh, I love that answer so much. I am uh, pretty history obsessed. And um, I'm curious, Brittany, where did that come from? Did you, were you always into stories? Was it something that you found as a student later on? Where did that interest in history pop up? Yeah. I mean, as, as stories, definitely. I, as a kid, I was an avid reader. I would escape into books. I had a best friend that would take my books away because she was trying to hang out with me and I was like hiding under a table <laughs> reading. Um, so always into stories. I think I found history and came to history later, probably in college. And I found that I was always drawn towards finding out as much as I could about like whatever it was, whether it was my family history or like a topic that came up, I always kind of go down these rabbit holes and find all the, the weird stuff. Um, and I think as I came to understand myself better, who I was, and also kind of power in society, I started having a lot of questions about who was telling stories and where people like me were in those narratives. And it's probably how I ended up finding my, my beat, my journalism beat as well. So you co-wrote this book. Um, how did that come about? Do you, are you friends did you like meet at the library researching? Yes, we, we are friends. Um, Lindsay and I met in a Facebook group for sports writers of marginalized gender, like, I don't know, five plus years ago now. And we just kind of hit it off. Um, we were some of the only openly queer people in the group at the time. So we just started messaging each other and, um, Lindsay loves football, plays football, writes about football, and I have never played it. I, I was a cheerleader in high school, so I came to game day culture and football culture through that. But the sport itself, I don't know a ton about. And um, whenever I had a football question, I would ask Lindsay. And um, I was writing a column about the current state of women's football and being a history nerd was trying to find a book. I'm like, what is just the history of women in this game? I want that context, even if it's not in my article, that's important for me to understand the context in which, you know, I'm operating. And turns out the book I wanted did not exist. So there was all of these like sexist, you know, like, Hey ladies, do you want to learn football? So you can like watch with your man on Sundays. And so I'm sending these screenshots to Lindsay and being like, what the heck is this? And she's like, it sounds like you need to write a book. And I was like, well, if I write it, you're writing it with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> here we are. We wrote a book <laughs> about women's football together. We did a thing. Um, and that's, that's Lindsay Dark, Darkangelo. Is it is. Say it? Mm -hmm. So it is, first of all, isn't it amazing 
when you stumble across one of those how has nobody written a book about this topics yeah they're they're so rare when the intersection of what you love collides with no one's done this yet um it's amazing I don't even know how to tell you that I think this is my first book. It's Lindsay's first nonfiction book. Uh, She has written some YA um, and fiction. And I also feel at the same time, like it's a once in a career kind of topic that I truly cannot believe no one had done before. Um, When we stumbled upon it, we were, we were doing a larger look at the history of women in football and we thought it was going to be a much more general book and that book didn't sell, but in the process of doing that research, we found this league and, um, you know, we found it because the, the winningest team in pro football history, men's or women's, the Toledo troopers played in this league. And so there's some stuff out there about them. And as I started to ask questions about their first loss. And what happens when the winningest team loses their first game and, and started trying to look into that, I realized like, wait, there were other teams. They had to be playing people. Who are these people and why have we never heard of them? There's not even a Wikipedia page for this league. Um, And that was, it became so clear so fast that this is where the book was. Uh, Before we dive into some of the the content, I have to ask. So the book is called Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. It's basically the perfect title. uh, (laughs) And I'm curious uh, who gets credit for that between the two of you. Was that a... Neither of us. We cannot take credit. So we sold the book as Demons, Dandelions, and Dolls, which are three of the Mm -hmm. team names. Mm -hmm. The publisher chose Hail Mary and... I had some feelings. I was, I'm Jewish. And so I don't know what people's connotation with Hail Mary is. And I was a little bit worried that it was going to be Catholic. So I talked to some people. What is, and we, we pulled a bunch of people. What what is your, and it like, what do you think of when you hear Hail Mary? And eventually what we ended up doing is if you read the book, you'll see there's a few ways in which we end up tying that title in both to describe the league and in talking about football as religion in, um, in America. And so that those parts of the book came after the publisher gave us our title. (laughs) Wow. Well, now this this is the danger. I, I I had a book come out years ago and, um, they changed the title famously. And, uh, after like three years, my agent's like, stop telling people what the title was going to be. All it does is makes you sad and makes them wish it had <laughs> stuck. And I got to say, Demons, Dandelions, and Dolls, is that what you said it was? Uh-huh. That's, that's pretty badass, too. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even, I'm not upset at all about the title we ended up with because actually the parts where we weave the title into the narrative are some of my favorite, like some of my favorite writing in the book came out of trying to think about how the title relates to the material. So I think it, I think we, we, we won there. And to that point, you, so you set it up well, it might be in the introduction, right? And you talk about what this book is going to be and what it's not going to be. And you're also doing a little education for the person who maybe is more interested in, if not history of sport, probably, you know, inclusivity in the history of sport. And you say, here's what a Hail Mary is in the game. It's this, it's this desperate prayer of a, of a final attempt to score a touchdown when all hope is, is, is lost. And then you say this league then comes to be symbolized by some kind of similar effort, right? Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of set up what this attempt at female football, women's football in this era was? Yeah. I mean, like you said, I think that this book, there's a huge audience that could be interested in this book. It's sports history. It's women's history. It's queer history. um, And it's all of that kind of tied into one. and we want everyone to know from the beginning that that is the story we're telling. There's something here for everyone. And for us often sports are told. Most stories are told from the perspective of right. These male owners, the male coaches who made the women what they were. And we were really interested in telling the stories of the women who played and who took the field and what motivated them to play professional football at a time, you know, in the 1970s, um, when that sport was largely off limits to them, they came to the game as adults because where are you going to play as a girl before Title IX? Like, where are you going to learn to play football? You're not. And so for us, we wanted to show, like, 
these women are up against so much and they took the field anyway. And that this book and these women are a triumph. And that is the story. Like you, you open in the introduction, you learn they're up against so much and they triumphed anyway. And that's where the Hail Mary comes in. Like maybe this league is not going to succeed, but if you don't, you know, don't take the pass at all, you'll never know. And it definitely will never happen then. And so that's what these women did. They, they gave it their best shot. Uh, so Brittany, you, uh, you've previously done a good bit of, uh, some award-winning work on women's baseball. Uh, and, and, uh, I'm curious, you know, as I was reading, particularly that, that first section of the book, uh, where you talk about game day and you, you narrate the first loss of the troopers. Uh, I just couldn't help but wonder when this movie is going to get made. It has a league of their own two vibes written all over it. Yes from your mouth to, you know, whoever's ears. Um, <laughs> I think we think of this, I mean, when, when we're describing this to someone who says, what is this book? I've said, if you like the aspect of women in history, like historical women playing a quote unquote men's sports um, story, like, uh, like a league of their own, but openly gay and racially integrated, Plus, the men thought this was a gimmick, but the women made it real aspect of glow. I think you have this book. And so I believe there's an audience for that. Glow and A League of Their Own have both done very well. So here's hoping. I was actually going to ask, so my wife does roller derby and roller mm. derby has a similar thing, right? Where like yeah. back in the day, it was very much a spectacle. And like when you got a penalty, you went to the sin bin and you got spanked and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. when it, when it sort of came back in the nineties, Oh, Kathy didn't know any of that. I'm sorry to spring I that on you. Ka- yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, yeah. Cause, cause again, oh, it was gosh. much, much in the way that Brittany, you were just describing how glow originated, how a lot of men who paid for some of the original stuff for this or, or imagine this, it was, it was more about let's see pretty girls do manly things and make that a spectacle. I don't want to say a joke. Cause I don't think it was, it was meant to be totally a joke, but it was definitely like a very male gazy and not, not serious sport. Right. And it seems like again and again and again, the women who are actually drawn to participate in these things just completely wholeheartedly reject that. And, and if I'm remembering correctly, you even talk about how for the Oklahoma City Dolls, there were a number of women who joined and then like pretty quick, quickly quit who were like the more stereotypical, like, you know, pretty or whatever, who kind of realized that what the rest of the women on the team wanted wasn't what they had sort of signed up for. Is that, is that wanted to play? Yeah. These women wanted to play. Yeah. I think so to understand the origin of this league, you have to go back to the late sixties and a, a man named Sid Friedman and Sid Friedman was a Cleveland based promoter and he did not discriminate in terms of what kind of things he was going to promote, no matter how gimmicky or out there. And he was really just about getting press and making money, whether it was he promoted some Miss Outer Space pageant where the the winner would have a chance to go to the moon. You know, we hadn't been to the moon yet. So um, <laughs> they were like, he would try to break, get help people break these like ridiculous uh, like world records for things like I think harmonica playing or something. So a lot of kind of out there stuff. And that's where he came up with the idea to have a women's football team as a barnstorming venture, a la the Harlem Globetrotters, in which they would tour the country playing men's teams. And it was going to be a spectacle. I don't know whether he gave any thought to whether that they were going to actually win any games or not. He imagined tearaway skirts. Um, These are part of what he thought was going to happen. And he put an ad in the paper looking for women to play football and the women that showed up were like really ready to play in fact we opened the book talking about a woman named marcella sanborn who like the boston globe named the women's like sport athlete of the year for you know the late 60s she played both ways and um as many of the the women did but so this like happens repeatedly is that these men think 
there's two kinds of strains here. There's the ones that think it's going to be a gimmick and the women show up and they really play. And then there's this other really naive man who doesn't know much about how sports leagues happen and thinks he'll put some money in it. And in a few years, he's going to be rolling in it. And of course he loses all of his money and then leaves the women high and dry um, because he doesn't want to keep investing. And so this is the kind of theme that you see a lot throughout women's sports in general, but particularly in this league, And when the NWFL formed in 1974, what happened was several teams were sick of Sid Friedman and they felt exploited. He sent hustler photographers to their practices and they were horrified. He asked the troopers who were that the best team to throw games because he didn't like them beating his teams and that, you know, they were offended by this proposition. And so these women um, eventually pulled away from Sid Friedman uh, to form a league in which they could take themselves as seriously as, you know, they wanted to. How do you think that it morphed from that idea of a barnstorming kind of a spectacle thing? Was it just sheer, like these women showed up and they were like, well, you wanted people to play football. You asked for women to play football. What did you think you were going to get? Like how, um, how did it become what it became? Yeah, part of it was just that. And I think the sheer number of women that were interested surprised uh, Sid Friedman. And so he quickly pivoted from having this one barnstorming team to, well, what if the teams played themselves, uh, play each other? I mean, and I don't think he stepped away from the gimmick aspect, but he started to think bigger and thought, what if we had the NFL, but for women? and he was hampered for a lot of different reasons. You know, one was that he didn't really take them all that seriously. The other, I think he tried in an attempt to have control over this. It wasn't a quite a functioning league, but it, he wanted it to be. He owned all most of the teams. And so he didn't also have that much money. So he can't keep that many going. And so he was hampered by that as well. And so a lot of these other teams that popped up were independent outlets who had, you know, a dedicated coaching staff and ownership. And eventually that is how the league ended up forming. But yeah, the women all over the country, once people saw that women were playing football at all, like outside of Sid Friedman, other women's teams started popping up. I have so many, so many things I want to ask you about. So I... Probably out of out of we co-hosts, I am likely the biggest football fan. So I'm from Pittsburgh, where uh, when you grow up in Pittsburgh, I mean, it is like a big, huge part of the culture is football. And I mean, literally, you talk about uh, this one event, this one all-star game that happened, I think back in like 1968. And I was laughing because it was... Um, yeah, it was late in the fall of 68 when the Cleveland Daredevils and the Pittsburgh All-Stars played. And it happened at Bethel Park High School, which is like five minutes from where I grew up. So this stuff is in my backyard. All of these stories, this goes through the 80s when I'm growing up. And I know none of these stories. So uh, on the one hand, I'm just fascinated by how somebody who is legitimately interested in local history, Pittsburgh history, sports history, doesn't ever hear any of this stuff, right? Um, and and the one tie-in that I really wanted to ask you about, because we mentioned the League of Their Own earlier, and a famous character in that film, of course, is Jimmy Fox, who's played by Tom Hanks. And Jimmy Fox had been like an old, you know, famous slugger who then takes on this role. In the story you tell, you bring up Marion Motley, who I think is a really interesting part of the story to discuss because um, for folks who don't know, Motley was in a lot of ways doing in football in the 1950s what Jackie Robinson had done in baseball, which is to break the color barrier. And Motley was a really famous running back for the Cleveland Browns and his career ended and he had always been one of those players who wanted to coach and he could not get any coaching opportunities. And the 60s are coming and going and Motley's just out there with all this ability Jackie Robinson passes away in 1972. His last public remarks are like, when are, when are we going to get a chance to coach? And so Motley finally, in this league, finds this opportunity to coach. And so the inclusion is coming from all different directions here in this part of the story. Um, but it's just a lot of 
marginalized people who really, to your point, are not trying to look at this as a gimmick. They are really looking for a chance to play real football in a real league. Um, so can you just kind of talk about that trajectory? Like we already talked about Friedman and how his circus, I think you called him mm-hmm. P.T. Barnum, you know. So as the 70s are going along and more Title IX conversations and, and, inclus- and inclusion conversations are happening, um, what are some of the what are some of the things that are happening um, maybe in the larger social context that this, that intersects with the stories that you tell about this football There's league? so much happening at this time. And I think so. Marion Motley um, was one of the ex NFL players hired by Sid Friedman. Um, there was a couple more. He did this for promotional purposes. He had NFL player names attached to his teams and he thought that was going to give him publicity. So I didn't, you know, Sid Friedman has passed, so I can't ask him, but what I gather from the way he worked was more about, you know, whatever was going to bring the publicity rather than, you know, breaking these um, barriers for black coaches. But you're right. These coaches were given opportunities. We believe the first um, black coach in pro football history was in this league. His name is Bob Edwards and he coached the Los Angeles Dandelions. We also believe the first woman to coach pro football was in this league. Her name is Paralee Adams, and she was a player on the Columbus Paysetters who transitioned into a coaching role in the 1978 season. And what's really interesting when you look at the NFL today, talking about their 12 or 13 women coaching, and they're really like touting this. When you look back at when the NWFL formed, the teams were asked sometimes by reporters, you know, why there weren't any women coaching them, why they were coached by men. And the answer was because we have never had the chance to learn the game as kids. And we don't, women don't have the fundamentals and the ability to teach them because we've never been given an opportunity. What you see as the league goes on is players, women transition into those coaching roles by the eighties, all of the pace setters coaches have uh, at that time are all women and former players. And many of the women who are coaching in the NFL today have come up through the women's semi-pro leagues that exist. And so these are ways that, yes, these opportunities were happening. All of this is happening against the background of, you have Title IX passes um, in 1972, just a couple years before this league starts. Billie Jean King's Battle of the Sexes, you know, in 1973, she had a women's sports magazine in the 70s called Women's Sports, which actually gave NWFL players the only, uh, sports magazine cover stories that they ever got was Billie Jean King's magazine. And then you have the women's liberation movement happening in which, you know, a lot of these women are being tried to be pigeonholed as women's libbers by the, by the newspapers. And I think there's a flattened version of history that puts these women at the center of the women's liberation movement. And I think most of them would reject that narrative. And we really tried to balance that in the book to not put words or motivations in their mouths while also recognizing that there was something about the social environment in the seventies that allowed women to maybe take chances and do things that they might not have done previously. And the other part of the book that I think comes into play a lot is queer liberation post Stonewall um, and what that looked like, particularly in middle America, not in the cities, not in the liberal, liberal, liberal areas, but in some of these middle American towns and cities where these women were playing and what their lives were like. And so all of that is kind of happening in the background of both this league and uh, the book. So I have to ask uh, about the researching of this book. It has to have been incredibly challenging. Um, what, what were some of the biggest hurdles you faced? And, and I, I guess I want to say that because you know, earlier you said what fascinates you is the stories that don't get told, right? And so, like, by very virtue of the fact that these are the things that captivate you, well, it makes it that much harder to recover them. And certainly the further you go back in history, the harder that is. So, yeah, what, what were some of the, the biggest hurdles that you faced? And were there any, like, stories or pieces that you, like, you just couldn't nail down that you're, like, really wish you could have found that, like, one extra, like, letter to a, a parent or or something, you know, that would have been like, ah, we knew it! Oh, well, two weeks after the book was finished, we got 
a whole cache of documents that we'd spent like three years trying to track down. Um, <laughs> they'll be in the paperback. <laughs> yeah, there um, you go. And we got a Sports Illustrated excerpt, and that Sports Illustrated excerpt is actually the original content. It's original content. It's not in the book, and it's based on those documents, um, which is the story of the Columbus Paysetters and how they formed their own corporation to purchase themselves from the men who owned them. Um, <laughs> wow. It's a, it's a little, that sounds right? like so many levels right there. It's a little paragraph in the actual book because we found like a little newspaper clipping that was maybe two paragraphs long that mentioned the team changing ownership and, and the players having purchased the team. But I couldn't, we couldn't find anything else. And um, right after the book was, our fact checker actually tracked down the player that was quoted in the paper. And she connected with us, but just a little bit too late. She also had a bunch of the NWFL founding documents from the 1974 meeting where the league was founded that we were never able to find. And so we do have those now, which answered some questions for us um, that are dangling a little bit in the book. The other thing, we write about the Philadelphia Queen Bees. We could not we could not confirm they ever took the field. And since the book has published, we've confirmed they played at least four games. I have a photograph from one and I have a full team roster from 1976. So this is like very cool. Um, and we are excited to have the opportunity to update the paperback. And also we knew going into this project that this is what was going to happen because we we estimate 19 teams existed at some point. There may have been more. Um and if you think about over 14 seasons, oh, thousands of women went to a practice or played in even a single game. Um, and so there's no way to tell that whole story. There's just not. There's never going to be. And so we ha we knew from the beginning that there was going to be a point when we had to just like call it and say, this is going to be what it is. And we hope that people build on this work. That's what we really hope. So I will say that the most challenging part was that there was a lot of coverage of the teams in the beginning. And like, that's where you get the names from, you know, the newspaper, you find a player name. And then if you track them down there, they have the game day programs and then you have a full roster and then you work from there. You know, you build backwards. Uh, there was always, every team had like the one player who saved literally everything and had the box with all the newspaper clippings and all the, the, like the playbooks and everything. And once you found that player, you were pretty, you were pretty golden. Um, but I will say what was really hard was researching the eighties because they stopped writing about the league once the novelty wore off. And so we don't know a lot about those years of the league. And I would really love to know more. And the other piece is that we reported a lot of this in the pandemic. So um, we had planned to take a trip to a couple cities and access non-digitized archives, and that just could not happen. So we know that there are gaps probably in the research that are fairly easy to find if we have the archives, and we just were not able to get to those because of timing. Well, and you could just see this happening, right? Somebody hears a podcast episode, somebody reads this book, and they, they say, hey, mom, that that football league. And then that's the individual that has this, you know, stockpile of, uh, of an archive or something that, that'll be able to be surfaced. And, oh, somebody wants it. We've got it here, you know, in some trunk in the middle of uh, yeah. Iowa or something. So it's a box, that's, that's such a fun. A trunk. <laughs> it could be I a mean, trunk. Yeah. Nobody has trunks anymore. Brittany, did you uh, have a, have a favorite trunk. player that you were able to interview? I have different players that are my favorite for different reasons. But if we're speaking strictly of like, A, I think she's the breakout star of the book. If social media is to believe and be believed, which is her name is D.A. Starkey. And she played for the Dallas Blue Bonnets. And she was hilarious. She probably has all of the best lines in the book. Um, and... The reason I mention her, though, as well is, is because I think personal reasons I connected a lot with. I was in the process of leaving my husband. Um, I actually asked for a divorce about a week after I spoke to Starkey for the first time. And, um, huh. you know, Lindsay and I are both queer, and we knew that probably the, some of the players were queer as well, but we didn't know 
whether A, they were going to want to talk about it, or B, is this, if they saw it connected to their time playing football at all. And Starkey was the second interview I did for the book. And two minutes into the call, she stops me and just says, you know, we were all gay, right? And I had this moment. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thank God. Like, And I said, yes, Like, let's talk about that. And um, I was interviewing the Dallas team who actually formed in a lesbian bar. Like, They were all hanging out drinking and decided to go try out for the football team together. And those were the players I was interviewing as I was leaving my husband. And they you know, you connect differently with sources when you're recording a book. And I'm like connecting with my elders at this time that I'm having this like mm. major shift. And it ended up being really meaningful for me. And these women kind of inspired me in a way to finally do the thing I'd been thinking about doing. And so I think that team and those women have kind of a special place for me because of kind of what was going on in my life when I was talking to them. That's amazing. And isn't that uh, the strange, maybe not, the, I don't know the word I'm looking for. When you are writing, interviewing, you just don't know one who you'll connect with and why. Um, how do you think that impacted the way you shaped the whole book? Um, do you, do you feel like that interview, what you were going through personally, did that make its way through as you were researching, as you were writing? Maybe I will say that it was really important to me and Lindsay not to erase the queerness. It's very easy to write this book and never talk about the fact that these players were queer. But as queer people, we're really aware of the fact that our history is often invisibilized and erased and that we have always existed and we've always been here. And the fact that these teams served as a safe space for these women to be who they were at a time when the world was hostile to them, I think is a really important function of that book. And so that was at the forefront of our mind as we were writing, because we wanted to make visible our own community's history as we, we were writing, right? We want to like, not straight wash the book um, and be able to see ourselves reflected. And so I think the fact that we were both queer meant that also the players, if a player would come out to me, I would come out in return so that they knew um, that, and I would let them know that Lindsay was also queer and that way they knew that we were safe. But at the same time, we are both white writers. And I wonder if some of the players of color might have spoken to us differently about their experiences on the team and with their white teammates, if we had been not white. And that is something like, I wonder if someone else, if, uh, if a black woman was interviewing some of the black players, if they might be more candid or speak differently about their time in the league. And that's the way, that's the pace where we can try to be as objective, quote unquote, as we can be, but that we are also going to be limited by and influenced by our identities and how people relate to us as we interview them. Sure. Well, and that's why I appreciated how you included Marion Motley's story. And then early on in the book, you talk about kind of the, the promotion, the advertisements, and then um, you mentioned the billboards and how um, there's, there's, there are fake players <laughs> because um, the, the ads have to appeal to this pretty much white male gaze. And so what they're expecting is white women who look a certain way. And um, and so for me, I am not, I mean, Clay is very correct. Out of the three of us, he is the most like football person. <laughs> I call it sports ball. But um, for someone who is not as invested in sports, seeing it and reading it as a woman of color going, what? This is amazing. And appreciating those kind of snippets of intersection and understanding that when you tell the story of women, it's broad. Mm-hmm. It's broad. Yeah. I love these women. I hope like if there is a movie, one of the things that Lindsay and I feel super strongly about is that the casting be as diverse as they really were both racially, but also like, I want to see butch women on screen. I don't want a token like femme 
queer, like put one of them on sure, but these were butch masculine of center women. And I want to see them on screen and I want to see them have fully developed love lives and like be desired and have character development. Like we don't see those things. And I loved being able to do some of that in this book. Well, I, I have to say, I think a series, you know, especially in the way that stories are being told with such depth of richness now, um, to really expand this over a television series could be really cool. And it's interesting, you know, a league of their own will always be kind of this like benchmark because of what it did in in its time. But even that story, to your point, it told it in a very specific way. And then you see at the beginning of 2020, the documentary secret love came out, which, which goes back and says, Hey, here's two of the women that made that league, you know, so famous. And by the way, they had a secret, love affair and now this documentary explores it um terry donahue and pat henschel that was definitely not talked about right in the original property so you can one thing from the anonymity and the way that this has been buried all this history if you get a chance to tell it in a larger way i think that'll be really powerful to kind of do it over a long form where everyone is explored and we meet all these I characters. Love, and I got to speak to Pat Henschel um, before Terry passed because we talk about how I like to write like the pieces of history that you're not seeing. And I actually wrote a piece about the queer women who played in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. And I used player obituaries actually um, to name and identify some of these people and their partners for maybe the first time. And that's work that I hope to continue doing um, uh, because I think it's really, really important because a lot of people we know about charm school and the skirts and all of that from the movie, but they don't tell you it wasn't just because it was the fifties. It was homophobic. It was because they did not want the women to be perceived as lesbians. And many of them were, that is crucial and central to how the league ended up with the image that it has. And yet we erase that when we tell the story. It's powerful stuff. Well, you're talking about where your future work is going. We certainly look forward to it. Let's just finish with a thought maybe um, probably a lot of people, whether they're football fans or not, became familiar with uh, Sarah Fuller, who is actually from right down the road from JR and I here in Dallas from Wiley. She became a kicker for Vanderbilt. And that was for a lot of people the story of like, oh, there's this college athlete who is playing and she's kicking points and all this stuff um, and, and building on this long legacy, right? But when we talk about kind of where football is now, with a lot of the controversies from both the NFL and what you see women's football, uh, probably a lot of people are wondering, wait, is this stuff still happening? Are there still leagues? Can you just speak to that a little bit? There are four or five women's semi-professional leagues in the U.S. It is shocking how little has changed in the past about 50 years. I've interviewed players that are playing today, and I've interviewed players that played 50 years ago and in some ways their quotes are interchangeable I could slot them in and you wouldn't know the difference and what I mean by that is these are people who are at the top of the game their game they're the best in the world at what they do and no one is watching them (laughs) no one is going to the games most people don't know that their teams even exist they are working full-time jobs paying to play um, the sport that they love these are things that are and there's not even like an Olympics mm-hmm. every four years for them to get that two weeks. No, there's of glory, nothing. Right? There was a documentary called Born to Play. It's streaming on Hulu and maybe Netflix right now about the Boston Renegades. And they are what I call the modern day Toledo Troopers. They are the best women's football team in the world. I'm lucky to be local to them and get to actually go to their games and watch them play. And they're incredible. And it's such a shame, I think, about how many great athletes we are denied the ability to watch, achieve to the fullest extent because they haven't been given the same access. But most major cities have a women's semi-pro football team. So if you're interested in this, if you look it up, there is probably one in your city. Um, And I think right now the questions that the women's football community is facing is there's all of these separate leagues and they really have to decide if there's a way for them to come together um, instead of splitting talent and resources and all of that and kind of have some some kind of centralized league. Um, But I think there's a lot of questions. Some people want the NFL to come step in. Others are like, what, why do we want this kind of 
broken, <laughs> uh, really messed up league to then come take over our sport. And um, so there's a lot of questions that I think are being asked in the women's football community right now. But it is very vibrant and very active, and there are a lot of teams currently playing. I went ahead and took the, the liberty of looking up some of our local league's co-hosts. Kathy, up in Chicago, you've got the Chicago Force. We do. They can good. go see. Oh, uh, Clay, you and I have the Dallas Elite. Uh, I'm excited about going to see a game of them. And then our co-host, Matt, who's not on us from Portland. And so he has the Portland Fighting Shockwave. Uh, and like Brittany said, pretty much if you're near a, a, a major city, you're going to have a team. So go. The Pittsburgh mm-hmm. Passion. There They're you go. pretty good, too. Uh, uh, Brittany, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if our listeners want to follow what you're doing online, where are the best places to send people? either Twitter or Instagram. I'm at Brittany DLC. Love it. All right. And then uh, I actually find your website very helpful as well. A lot of your previous uh, works are listed there. Some of your articles that folks can read as well. Uh, While they're rushing out to buy the book, Hail Mary, wherever books are sold. Uh, Not to be confused with Andy Weir's Project Hail Mary. Um, Yeah, which was also great, but a very different book. Uh, not at all. Very yeah, not different. at all what you're expecting if you listen to this interview. More actual <laughs> outer space than Sid yes. Freeman's. Yeah. Yeah. That's correct. That's correct. There is actual outer that space in that one. <laughs> Sci-fi. Uh, Brittany, our, our last thing we always do is invite our guests to, to share something that's fascinating us this week as a way to point our listeners to. So we'd love to invite you to do that. Uh, we'll also let you go last since we spring it on you. So, uh, Clay, why don't you tell us what's fascinating you this week? Yeah, well, I got to have a fun little birthday hangout earlier this month with Jr. and Amanda. And Jen and I, we, um, we had this game Jr. had got us called Time Stories. And I don't know, it's been sitting here for what, Jr. Maybe it was like pre-COVID, we were going to play it. And it, it's, one of those, it's one of those games, it's a, it's a card exploration kind of game where um, it takes a long time. So we figured we'll set this up and we'll have it. And, and the idea is kind of like if you combined Quantum Leap and like choose your own adventure, then the people that are involved kind of go into this exploration. So you have to go back in time and you land in this uh, like old 1920s asylum and you have to kind of piece together what's happening by the, by the decisions you make. And you just kind of get to talk about it as a group. It was really fun, JR, since, since you're very much included in, in what's fascinating me. Um, I really liked it as a hangout game. And uh, even the box is designed, so you can kind of like put it back and pick it up at a later time. Um, but you kind of finish that story, and then you can move on to the next story and and, and do it like that. But I don't know what your experience was, but it was a very fun similar. I'd say the other mechanic that really sold it for me that you did not mention is that you almost certainly do not have enough time in the game to solve the mystery the first time through. So you have right. to actually like reset everything and travel back again. Yeah, it's like a respawn. And so now you have new information. But like, if you had to pick that person's pocket to get a, a key to unlock that door over there, you have to do that again because you've like gone back in time again. You know, so. Very fun. Like, or don't go down that yeah. corridor. We know yeah. that's useless. And okay, you were together. Really cool. So, yeah, very fun. Time story. Kathy, what about you? So I have been um, looking for something new to watch on Netflix that does not require much thought. And um, I'm coming across this whole world of Christmas movies I did not know existed. Oh, there's some they're, bad they're, ones. I mean, most of them are bad. It's like really bad. um, And I, so I'm trying to look up the name and I'm not fast enough, but there are a couple new ones on Netflix. There's one like Brooke Shields is in it. I haven't seen Brooke Shields in forever. So with Carrie Elwes, is that what it is? I don't even something about a castle Christmas. I don't know. I don't know. So I'm just fascinated. I've not watched. um, I, I probably have, but I don't know the hallmark. Like they, they have this whole, like that's, a thing. Um, so I'm fascinated by this and I'm finding that a lot of people I know love these movies and I'm fascinated because um, a lot of them are like deep thinkers and like justice oriented, but then like 
Christmas time comes and it's just like mindless, dumb entertainment that is formula and like all of this stuff. So I'm just kind of fascinated by all of that. I'll probably watch a few more bad ones while I bake and then I'll need to find something a little more substantial. And bags of squid games. Nice. Game, yeah. uh, I'm going to throw out a game as well in honor of talking about football this week. Uh, it's a game we've had for a long time, but we broke it out again over the weekend. It's called Space Team. It uh, runs on a five-minute timer, and it's cooperative, so it's fast, and it's hilarious. It involves a lot of shouting and laughter and collapsing in an exhausted funk at the end of the five minutes and then immediately wanted to play again. So... You're, you're all uh, a team of astronauts and you have to hold tools in your hands that are designed in ridiculous ways and have completely ridiculous names. And then everyone's trying to solve different malfunctions to save your ship from blowing up in five minutes. And so you're shouting out the things that you need, but everyone's doing that at the same time. And so you, you're, you have to listen, but also get the things you need. And, uh, oh, it's yeah. like Space Pit. Yeah, it's very fun, very silly. And again, it only lasts five minutes. So you can either play it, you know, 10 times in a row for an hour or uh, just, you know, play a couple games and move on. So Space Team, uh, pretty affordable, good Christmas <laughs> gift. And Brittany, what about you? What's something that you, you're fascinated by? Yeah, you're week? not limited to board games or TV shows. You can go <laughs> so anywhere you want. It is Sagittarius season. And in honor of my favorite Sagittarius, myself, well, I'm my favorite Sagittarius. My birthday was Monday. And I share <laughs> Happy my birthday. birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> I share my birthday with Sagittarius icon Taylor Swift. And so I have been really deep down the Gaylor Swift rabbit hole lately. So if you don't know, there are Gaylor Swift theories. If you Google it, beware, you will lose yourself for a very long time. The, the gist of it is that Taylor Swift is queer, um, maybe bi, so, you know, get, hence Gaylor. And um, her fan base has created these very detailed Easter eggs and clues in the songs that they then compare to social media posts and all it's a whole thing but so i haven't gotten that deep in the weeds but what i have done is made myself a playlist of the gayest taylor swift songs and so i have my gaylor swift playlist <laughs> and i've been listening to it a lot um for sagittarius is this season. on spotify is this a public mine playlist? is not but there are gaylor swift um okay. public spotify playlists <laughs> Amazing. Uh, well, Brittany, we want to say once again, thank you for joining us for this episode. Uh, it has been such a great interview, and we didn't even get to talk about football as religion. So maybe we'll have to have you back when the paperback comes out uh, to, to to talk more about this incredible book that y'all gave us. Or, or, you know, just the Netflix. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. When that comes out. Um, We're going to our- speak it into reality. <laughs> Uh, Our guest this week has been Brittany Delacreta. Uh, Their book is Project Hail Mary. It is a history of the National Women's Football League. Uh, please make sure you follow them online and Hail let Mary. them. Mary. I just want to like. Sorry, I know. I just did it. <laughs> I've been doing that all week, and I did so well up until just now. Every time I and look then, for my book, anywhere uh, book come up, comes up, and I'm like, you have to remind me that it's probably selling 900 million copies. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So it is just called Hail Mary, folks. Uh, thank you, Brittany, for that correction. Uh, yeah, please reach out to them. Let them know you enjoyed uh, having them on the show. We'll be back next week with our season finale, uh, best of 2021 episode. But in the meantime, uh, go look up your local women's football league and see what games they have coming up. Uh, and again, Brittany, thanks for being on the show. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. Go get boosted. Go get boosted.